0: Hi ladies, this is Women's Bible Study, but I am not Mikey. Uh, My name is Mary Hambly, and I'm Mikey's substitute. She is out this week, but she'll be back next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, there is none like you. You are holy and righteous. You powerfully provide for your people. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what you have prepared for those who love you. Please forgive us for not always looking to you for our provision. We try to get what we need from others or to do things for ourselves. You have always been there to provide for us, but we have not always trusted you to do so. You give us all that we need. You are all that we need. Thank you for your faithful provision. Lord, this portion of scripture is hard to understand. Please quiet our hearts and focus our minds. Help us to understand your word and to know how to apply it, that you might be glorified and we might be matured. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. My son is a history buff, so I asked him for an example of a mighty power sacrificing itself to help a weaker nation that had rebelled against it. He laughed and said, That doesn't happen. That's not how the world works. The foundational quote for international relations is the strong do as they will the weak suffer as they must but that's not how God treats us oh what a savior we have when we were powerless when we were rebels Jesus died for us he took our sin he took our punishment and he gave us his righteousness he gave us all the benefits that he had earned for himself Today's aim is God powerfully provides for those who stand with him. God powerfully provides for those who stand with him. And we'll look at that in two divisions. Division 1, Zechariah 3, 1-10, to 10, God cleanses his people. Division 2, Zechariah 4, 1-14, through 14, God empowers his people. As we open our Bibles to Zechariah 3, let's remember where we are. Of all the people on earth, God chose Israel to be his people. He loved Israel, provided for her, defended her. He brought her out of bondage in Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. His very presence was with her. But Israel rejected God. The Israelites worshipped and served other gods. Again and again, God sent judges, prophets, and kings to bring the nation back to him. But they refused to repent. Finally, God sent the powerful nation of Babylon to discipline Israel. The Babylonians were brutal. They tore down and burned the city of Jerusalem. They murdered, plundered, and took captives back to Babylon. But God hadn't rejected his people. He promised to bring them back to Jerusalem after 70 years. And after 70 years in exile, they were allowed to return home. The Babylonian captivity accomplished God's purpose. Never again were the Israelites seduced by the gods of their neighboring nations. Among those who returned were Zerubbabel, grandson of King Jehoiachin and descendant of King David. He's called the governor of Judah because Israel was not a sovereign nation. Zerubbabel led the people and worked to rebuild the temple. Joshua the high priest returned. This is a different Joshua than the man who led the Israelites into the promised land after God delivered them from Egypt hundreds of years earlier. Do you wonder if his parents named him Joshua, hoping he would lead the Israelites out of Babylon and back to the land God promised Israel? The name translated Joshua is actually Yeshua or Jesus. Both Yeshua and Jesus have the same name, which means Yahweh, or God, saves. Also returning from Babylon were the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who God spoke through to command the rebuilding of his temple and to encourage the people in their work. Haggai's book is right before the book of Zechariah in the Bible. God spoke to Zechariah in a series of eight visions given in one night. It's almost like he showed him a large TV screen and said, Watch! And Zechariah watched a scene. Then the channel was changed, and he watched another scene. But Zechariah isn't just watching. He actually participates in the drama. The visions were meant to encourage Joshua and Zerubbabel, men living at the time the visions were given, to complete the work God had given them to do. But it also gave them eternal hope. The visions gave details about the Messiah, whose coming was future to these men, But as in our past, they had the hope of Jesus's coming. We have the certainty of knowing he did all the things God promised he would do. The returning Israelites set out on the long journey back to Jerusalem with high hopes. God had brought them back. They were in the center of God's will. So surely everything would be easy, right? Wrong. They returned to a city in ruins. The buildings homes, and Solomon's glorious temple had been destroyed and burned with fire. The wall around the city had been torn down. The people in the surrounding area didn't want them there. They ridiculed the Jews, sabotaged their work, brought false reports to the king. They tried to deceive the Israelites with false prophets and influential nobles. The work was much harder than they thought it was going to be and the results were much less impressive than they'd imagined. They didn't have the power of King David. They didn't have the wealth of King Solomon. They were a small band of ordinary men. The book of Ezra tells us that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple. The prophet Haggai asked, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? So the people quit working on the temple. For 16 years they let it sit. They built beautiful homes for themselves, but they forgot about the temple of God. So God sent a famine, and God sent prophets, to remind the people who they were and what was required of them. But they wondered, Is there any hope for a defiled and discouraged nation? And today we may ask, Is there any hope for a defiled and discouraged church? Or a defiled and discouraged individual? What are we to do with our guilt and our sin? Is it worth it to keep serving God when people and circumstances are so hard and the result seems so insignificant? I can't do anything special. I don't have any great gifts. Who am I against world powers, against Satan? God gave Zechariah visions to motivate and encourage the people of his day, and they're recorded to motivate and encourage us. Let's look at Zechariah's fourth and fifth visions and see what God did for Israel and what he does for us. Chapter 3 opens with the fourth vision of the night. Joshua the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is standing at Joshua's right side to accuse him. We're not told where they are, but Joshua is said to be standing before the angel of the Lord. Standing is a technical word for priestly ministry, so perhaps they're in the Jerusalem temple or the temple in heaven. Zechariah sees three players. First, Joshua the high priest. Joshua was wearing his priestly garments, sacred garments, meant to bestow dignity and honor on the priest. The high priest represented the people before God and wore the names of the tribes of Israel over his heart. On his head, he wore a turban. The turban had a gold plate on its forehead with the words, Holy to the Lord, front and center. The garments were made by skilled craftsmen out of gold and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and finely twisted linen. Joshua the High Priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, who is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. And next to Joshua is Satan. The Bible is clear that Satan is a real being. He's not simply an idea or a metaphor for evil. Satan is a powerful spirit, created by God before the world began. But instead of fulfilling his God-ordained purpose, Satan rebelled against God. There was war in heaven, and one-third of the angels sided with Satan. They were cast out of heaven, but they weren't destroyed. Satan and his demons roam the earth. They hate and oppose God and his purposes. Satan is an accuser, a tempter, and a deceiver. Satan is a liar. He presents good as evil and evil as good. He makes sin look enticing. He tells us that sin will give us all we've ever wanted and that God is holding back on us. But if we give in to sin, we find that it is sin that has taken everything. When we turn to it for help, sin laughs at us and takes even more. Satan hates God and he hates people. Because we're made in the image of God, and we're precious to him. So Satan does all he can to destroy us, and to turn us against the God who made us and loves us. He tempts us to betray God, and then he throws it in God's face. How can you love this human? Look how she's betrayed you. Verse 3, And then we're told that Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Joshua stands before God, a representative of the nation of Israel. But instead of lovely, clean garments, his robes are filthy. The dirt on his clothes represents sin, and he's covered in it. And it's not just a small food stain, he's filthy. The Bible says he's covered in filth, in human excrement. And Satan laughs This is your beloved? She's disgusting. She can't even lift her head. She's not fit to stand before you. And our problem is, it's true. Satan lies when he speaks to us. But when he tells God about us, he speaks the truth. Satan accuses Joshua of sinfulness, unworthiness, and faithlessness in his service to God. He argues with God that Joshua, clothed as he was, has no place in the presence of Almighty God. Joshua represents all of us, and Satan's accusations against us are true. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We've all gone astray, choosing our own path instead of God's. We do not love God with our whole heart. We do not love our neighbor as ourselves. So Joshua is silent, he has no defense to offer. But then the angel of the Lord speaks, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And when the Lord of hosts speaks, almost obey because Satan is not the equal of God. He was created by God. So Jesus pronounces a curse on Satan and silences him because they both know a deeper truth. Joshua is covered in filthy sin, but he will be cleansed. Jesus is coming. He will be born to a virgin named Mary. Jesus will take the sins of all of his people on himself. He will suffer and die in our place. He will pay the penalty for our sin. All of the sins of all of his children will be paid for in full. All those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will be forgiven. Their sins have been paid for. God is just. He will not ask for a second payment after the payment has been made in full. Romans 8 1 tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 4 says, So the angel said to those standing, excuse me, the angel said to those standing who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. There's a two-fold transaction here. First, Joshua's filthy robes are taken off of him. Notice that he does not remove them himself. He cannot. The same is true for us. We cannot get rid of our sin on our own. We must ask Jesus to take it from us. And miraculously, he does. He takes our sin away from us. But he doesn't leave us naked. We're not simply brought back to a neutral relationship with God. In the second transaction, Jesus gives us his robe of righteousness to wear. Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross for our sins. He lived a perfect life. For 33 years, he perfectly kept the law of God. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. His righteousness is a beautiful robe without a single stain or blemish on it. And Jesus willingly takes off his robe and places it on those who come to him in faith. His righteousness becomes ours. We stand before God in perfect righteousness, in a beautiful, clean robe. God is not neutral toward us. We stand in full fellowship and favor with God. And there's more. Joshua is given a clean turban on his head. He's truly holy to the Lord. So how can a morally defiled and sinful people appear in the presence of a holy God? Only through Jesus, our true high priests, work on our behalf. God powerfully provides for those who stand with him. Theologian John Stott says it this way, But God, in his undeserved love, has done for us what we could never do by ourselves. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. The love, the idea, the purpose, the initiative, the action, and the gift were all God's. Are you clothed in Christ's righteousness and therefore fit to appear before God? Or are you still clothed in the filthy robes of your own righteousness? Verse 6 says the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Joshua's cleansing led to restoration and then service. The order is important. Joshua was not told to clean himself up by acts of service, and then God would forgive him. No, God forgave Joshua's sin and then commanded him to serve. Forgiveness is freely given, but we cannot be justified and then do as we please. We must stop sinning, and in love and gratitude, we serve the God who has done so much for us. Joshua is given two charges that will result in three blessings. The two charges are first, to walk in God's ways. This refers to his personal attitude toward God. And second, to keep God's requirements. To faithfully perform his priestly duties. If he does these things, he will receive three blessings. First, govern God's house, to be a judge over the people of God. Second, to have charge of his courts, to exercise authority over the temple and its courts. And third, he will receive a place among those standing here. Theologians aren't agreed on what that means. It could mean that Joshua's service would be in cooperation with the angels of God. Perhaps it refers to Joshua having access to God like angels have. Or it could mean that after a life of faithful service, Joshua would walk among the angels in heaven. Our cleansing and justification are free gifts of God, but they come with responsibilities. Once we are fit for service to God, It's a privilege to serve him. Verses 8 to 9 say, Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Joshua and his associates were symbols of what was to come, and the word used means a sign of wonder. They signify something marvelous to behold. God is going to bring his servant, the branch, and the stone. These are not three things, but one. They're each an image of the Messiah, Jesus. Each image would bring to mind the many promises of God made in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. The stone had seven eyes on it and represented the all-seeing eye of God. God never sleeps. There's nowhere we can go that God is not watching and sovereign. And the chapter ends with two great promises. God will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Both of these promises were future to Zechariah. But the first promise has been fulfilled. On the day Christians call Good Friday, Jesus took the sins of all his people on himself and died on the cross, permanently taking away our sins. He removed our sin in a single day. The second promise is still future to us as well. The security and blessing promised will happen when Jesus is the ruler of all the earth. Neighbors will sit together at peace beneath the vine and fig tree. And although the full reality is still in the future, those who know Jesus as Savior can enjoy the peace of God now. We have peace with God through the forgiveness of our sins, and we can enjoy the peace of God and the many spiritual blessings He gives us. All this God has done for us, not because we are worthy, not because we were seeking Him, but Romans 5.8 tells us, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our first truth is this. God alone provides what we desperately need. God alone provides what we desperately need. God sees us lost and alone, defiled by our sin, with no way to help ourselves. And he comes to us at great cost to himself. He takes our sin and shame. He clothes us in his own righteousness. As you stand before God today, what are you wearing? Are you wearing filthy clothes? Or have you come to Jesus to have your filthy clothes removed? Have you been cleansed of your sin and had the beautiful garments of Christ's righteousness put on you? When you look at your heart, how do you see yourself? Whose voice do you hear? Satan's accusing you or the Lord rebuking Satan and defending you? How might knowing that God has provided all you need give you peace and rest this coming week? In our second division, we'll see God empowers his people. Chapter 4 opens with the angel asking Zechariah, what do you see? Zechariah describes a strange sight. It's a golden lampstand, but not like a traditional menorah that has a main stem with three branches protruding from each side. The menorah looks like a tree of light. Instead, Zechariah sees a bowl with seven smaller lamps around the rim of the basin, each of these lamps having seven wicks. This would have created 49 lights, a blazing lampstand. And he also sees two olive trees, one on the right side of the bowl and one on the left. Zechariah didn't understand what he was seeing and asked the angel to explain. But the angel doesn't tell us what each piece means, so we don't know. Commentators have suggested that the lampstand could signify God's temple, God's saving presence, or God's people. But the angel does tell us the main point of the vision. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God gave Zechariah this vision to encourage Zerubbabel to complete the building of the temple, which had proven an impossible task. Temple construction had begun 16 years earlier, but opposition had come from both outside and inside the Israelite community. Discouragement had set in and the building had stopped. So God gives Zerubbabel the formula for success, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Human wisdom, human strength, and human resources wouldn't get the job done. It could only be accomplished through the wisdom and power of God. And that's a principle for us, too. God's work must be done in total dependence on the Holy Spirit, or it will always fall short, lacking God's provision and God's power. No gifts, no knowledge, No magnetic personality can accomplish God's work without God's Spirit. And what mighty works can be done if God is empowering them? Mighty mountains will become level ground. The temple work, Zerubbabel started will be completed. Mighty mountains represent the colossal set of obstacles that stood in the way of rebuilding the temple. And they also represent world powers. Mighty world powers always stand against God, his people, and his purposes. But God promises that in the power of the Spirit, they will be brought down. Today, it seems like the mountains are growing, that world powers opposed to God are winning. And when it looks like we're losing, it's tempting to adopt the world's methods. Because it seems like that's what works. They're cheating. How do we cheat better? They're liars. How can we spin this? They're unfair. Let's meet fire with fire. But how does God say we're to meet the challenges we face? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God is mightier than world powers. God is mightier than Satan. He's in complete control. He's all-seeing, all-powerful. He's holy and good. He's the Almighty, and before him mountains will fall. And like the Israelites, we will shout, God bless it. Verse 10 says, Who despises the day of small things? As the temple foundation was laid and the building began, it was obvious to all that this temple would not look like Solomon's glorious temple had. David and Solomon had been mighty kings, wealthy and powerful. They had vast resources, building materials and people. And as the older Jews who had seen the original temple looked at this one, they wept. This new temple seemed so small and insignificant compared to Solomon's temple. But Haggai prophesied that this temple would outshine the first. And his prophecy was fulfilled 500 years later when Jesus, God himself, walked among its courts. Again we see that God commanded a task that was so difficult. Does that challenge your thinking? Does it seem like if God's if it's God's will, it should be easy, the path filled with sunshine and roses? God's work is not easy. In fact, God's work is impossible without God's help. God's work cannot succeed without God. And yet God calls us to do the work. But for most of us, our gifts and talents and resources seem so small. What can I do in the vast, scheme of things what does it matter if i show up i'm just one in the crowd what does my little donation mean when the need is so great but there's a truth here we are not to despise the small things nothing will be accomplished without work god allows us to participate in the work he is doing because that is the path to spiritual maturity there are no shortcuts to spiritual maturity Victories are won step-by-step over long periods of time. And things that seem insignificant to us may actually be of great importance if they're in the will of God and connected to the plan He is working out. We think of the boy who gave his five loaves and two fish that Jesus multiplied to feed over 5,000 people. The family who gave their donkey for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem. The women who cared for the needs of Jesus and His disciples. We don't know most of their names, but their obedience in the little things were of great importance to God's kingdom. Missionary Hudson Taylor's motto applies here. A little thing is a little thing, but faithfulness in a little thing is a big thing. Let us never despise the little things, not in ourselves, not in others, and not in what God is doing. Let's not look with our eyes and think, God isn't working. He's not doing enough. Beloved, God hears your prayers. He is working. He is God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. Nothing will stop him from accomplishing his purposes in his timing. Verse 10. Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And we will rejoice when we see God accomplish all that he has promised. Then there's this parenthesis These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the earth. Again, the exact reference isn't clear, but the meaning is God is omniscient. He sees all and knows all the past and the present and the future. He sees men and women, and he sees our hearts. Nothing will slip past God. We can fully rely on him. Verses 11 to 14 say, Then I asked the angel, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, What are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I said. He said, These are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. The two branches likely represent the two roles of priest and king, and the two anointed ones are Joshua and Zerubbabel, most commentators agree. The oil represents the Holy Spirit. And notice that unlike a normal lamp, this lamp is automatically filled with an endless supply of oil. God is willing and able to supply all our need. God powerfully provides for those who stand with him. And this leads us to the second truth. Obedience allows us to see God's provision. Obedience allows us to see God's provision. It's only when we step out in faith, that we find God perfectly provides for all of our need. So often we try to get what we need from others or do things for ourselves. God has always been there to provide for us, but we've not always trusted him to do it. He he gives us all that we need to obey him. Where are you despising the small things? Where is God calling you to serve him? How might serving God in the power of his spirit Change the way you serve. How might it change the results of your service? God powerfully provides for those who stand with Him. God alone provides what we desperately need. But only through obedience can we see God's great provision for us. He can cleanse us and empower us. We're simply called to trust Him and do the work He's called us to do. Our God is Lord of heaven and earth. What do we have to fear? If He's promised us the power of His Spirit, how can we fail? There are no small ministries or small sacrifices or small services offered to God. We have a great God who powerfully provides for those who stand with Him. Nothing done by faith is ever wasted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are a good and gracious Father. You give and You give and You give. We are so unworthy of Your love but you snatched us from the fire. You look on us in love, and you defend us with your life. Thank you for promising such a glorious future with you. Please help us to walk in your ways and keep your requirements. Fill us with your spirit that we might serve you in your strength and not our own. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, ladies. I hope you have a wonderful week. and We have just one announcement Um, coming up on Saturday, October 21st, is the Women's Fellowship Brunch, and you are all invited. We would love for you to come, Um, and you're welcome to bring friends. Um, It's free to attend, but please register online so we know how many ladies to prepare for. It will be a wonderful morning of fellowship, encouragement, and, of course, delicious food. See you there. Bye-bye.